0: to The J. Kim Show, Hong Kong's first dedicated podcast on investing in Asia. Join us as we survey the land and discover the greatest companies and most profitable investment opportunities in Asia. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week with the goal of providing actionable insights to you, the listener, with every single episode. And now, on to the show. This week's show guest is Larry Lipshire, who happens to be my tax accountant here in Hong Kong. Larry's been a practicing accountant specializing in taxation for over half a century. He's worked most of of his life in Asia and was licensed to practice as a CPA in China. He's also the author of multiple books on taxation and is a frequent guest speaker at international tax conferences. So you might be wondering why I have my tax accountant on the podcast. Well, surprisingly, I've gotten a lot of questions about tax implications for U.S. citizens living abroad after President Trump took office. And of course, after this explosion in cryptocurrency investing that we've seen in the last two years. So, I thought it might be good to get an expert on the show. Let's get on to it.
1: Larry, how are you? Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm feeling great. This is the 52nd U.S. tax filing season of my life, and I'm actually surviving.
0: You know, that's incredible. I was uh, I was just doing some research before our talk here today, and I was going to say nearly half a decade, but you've already surpassed that.
1: Uh, yes, this is the 52nd year I've been doing this stuff, and uh, it's amazing. I think I still have most of my sanity left in me. <laughs> well,
0: as we were talking about the last time we met up, it was probably the one thing that is keeping you... Uh, S- sane is uh is having to deal with all these uh complicated tax issues. Now, are you uh are, am I talking to you from Hong Kong now or I know that you were uh, kind of a a digital nomad now at this point in your career? Yeah,
1: <laughs> I am in Hong Kong. Last October, we uh vacated the apartment that we kept for 23 years in Hong Kong. I probably could have qualify for the Guinness Book of World Records. I know of nobody else who's rented the same apartment in Hong Kong for twenty-three consecutive years.
0: That's 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 amazing. What did your was your rent sort of I mean that your rent must have been, you know, just kept kept going up each year or like how how did that work? Or did you arrange some sort of long long term lease? Uh
1: no, I kept renewing year after year, and it's a strange thing. A landlord grows attached to a renter who a doesn't destroy the premises b pays rent on time those are golden things for a landlord and i fall under that category that's true it's very lucky um okay great
0: so larry why don't you just introduce yourself to uh, the audience maybe uh, you know you you You've obviously done over a de- half a century of, of uh, tax work, but maybe you could give us a little bit of background of yourself, uh, you know, where you come from originally and how you got into this whole racket. And, uh, you know, I think for the audience listening in, uh, you know, this is going to be a slightly different episode, but I think that it's still going to provide a lot of value, particularly for our U.S., uh, you know, U.S. citizens who are based abroad, uh, which is exactly what I am. Uh, so, Larry. Uh,
1: please introduce yourself. Okay. I'm the world's youngest 75-year-old. Age is strictly a matter of mind. I was born and bred in Brooklyn, New York, spent the first 17 years of my life in New York, migrated to California with my parents, started university at Berkeley in 1960. These were the radical 60s. And that first year in school, I was part of a group mass arrested for student protests. Nice. I wound up getting a bachelor's degree in political philosophy with a minor in English literature. Unfortunately, while I bettered myself as an individual, the only jobs open at that time for political philosophers was pumping gas and wiping windshields at gas stations. So I listened to my mother, I became an accountant, and one thing led to the next. I discovered very, very quickly, I hated accountants, and I hated accounting. (laughs) How do I wind up making it tolerable? The first 12 years of my career were spent in L.A. in the sports and and entertainment industry, uh, basically doing entertainment industry accounting, handling tax management for some very prestigious rock music groups, and, uh, you know, it was an interesting field. The... Rock music scene at that time, as now, is was all drug laced, and about all I can say is that over those twelve years, uh, it was an interesting experience, and I don't have a single nasal membrane left to prove it. <laughs> well, I, I guess I guess that's
0: one way to uh, to to uh, to make the time go by quick. Um, okay, and then so
1: after that, after. 12 years in Los Angeles, I moved my family up to Northern California, got involved in viticulture accounting, uh, developed a love for wines, only curtailed when my doctors eventually told me, you have a choice, a new liver or giving up your alcohol. I gave up the alcohol. What can I say? And discovered in the mid-1980s that My first marriage was quite dysfunctional. I felt I had an important obligation to help get three kids through, financed through university out of the house. And after that was all done, my first marriage at the end of 25 years came to a halt. In 1962, I took a course in government and politics of Asia, discovered China through Edgar Snow's Red Star over China. China became a hobby. So to speak, and in nineteen, in the late nineteen eighties, I started coming out here and discovering things. By night, by late nineteen ninety, I made the jump across the Pacific. Pond came to Hong Kong. Discovered that if I stayed in Hong Kong, all I'd be doing was U.S. tax work. So I moved to Shenzhen through nineteen ninety four when. My wife and I, I was remarried in 1993, met a wonderful Guangzhou girl in 1992, and by 1994, we were, for all intents and purposes, living in Guangzhou, where, which has been basically my primary residence since December 5th, uh, 1994.
0: Wow. So over 20 years, uh, sort of in China, I mean, China was a completely different different world back then. I mean it's it seems to be evolving at a very rapid pace, but particularly, you know, southern China, Shenzhen, Guangzhou, you know, we've seen Shenzhen just sprout up like a, a crazy weed across the border.
1: Jay, you have no idea. There are no words available, no visuals that can really describe living in Shenzhen and watching a Small town of three hundred and fifty thousand people grow to fourteen and a half million people. It's incredible. Double digit growth over a sustained period had never occurred any place in the world like this before, and it just—it was just amazing. It's—it was mind boggling. If you think Shenzhen is mind boggling now, you should see how it has transformed. It's an utter mir- miracle. Now I I know that you're
0: you you were licensed to
1: to as a CPA in China is that correct? Uh, that is correct. In 1999, I was president of the American Chamber of Commerce South China, and this was about the time that there was a trade dispute, uh, or th- basically the United States bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade when Yugoslavia still existed. Ah. Uh and there were virtually no communications. I represented not the American government, but the American citizenry, and I was de facto chairman of the international business community in Guangzhou. I put AmCham, much to the consternation of the US State Department, into a summer trade fair. It turned out that our booth was the most widely visited (laughs) and at the end of the trade fair, they had a banquet. They put the U.S. Consul General at the rear of the room, sitting with the Xinjiang trade people. They put me up on the dais at the head table, and I looked at my wife the next morning and said, let's take advantage of Guanxi. I'm owed it, after apparently giving an awful lot of face. One thing led to another, and I eventually got the same business license that the big four accounting firms had and only then discovered if I wanted to expand upon that, I'd have a problem. I'd have to hire people. I've been a, basically a one-man show since 1981 and I did not want to change that.
0: A solopreneur, uh, if you will. So Chinese accounting is an interesting uh, subject area because from an investor sort of financial standpoint, it always is the one area that no one can figure out and it's, it's kind of the one area that uh, people uh, you know, it it, it kind of, it, it deters them from actually investing into Chinese companies because of, uh, quote unquote, uh, shoddy accounting standards, if you will. Um, so I'm not sure exactly what, uh, how that differs from, from what you've seen, uh, you know, either on the personal tax level or on the corporate level. But, uh, you know, I'm sure that, uh, you know, it, it's it's strong enough that uh, investors, sophisticated investors, are hesitant to enter the market.
1: Well, you know, way back when, you visited a small town, a, a town or a village, and the accountant for the company town recognized the fact that the company was technically bankrupt. What do you do? Do you be an honest accountant and put the entire town out of work, or do you fudge things? And this is how accounting grew. Obviously, now there's far more accountability and you can't get away with that, but this was the rule of the game way back when. And I can't honestly say that Western accounting is any different. When I got my training, I won't mention the name of the company, but we just played around with inventory. Nobody ever picked it up on the certified audits. Right. I honestly don't trust accounting stuff and financial statements anywhere. Especially after Sarbanes Oxley, when there can be off the balance sheet assets and liabilities of what bal- of what value is the balance sheet truly if it's not really reflecting the entire company?
0: That's a great point, actually. You know, I mean, I think that a lot of Americans or Westerners are uh, influenced by mainstream media uh, and have a sort of negative perception of China. But you know, being someone that does live over here myself, and you obviously <clears throat> lived here for a long time. Uh, you're right. I mean, all account, all accounting can be manipulated and uh, to to whatever you, you want your end goal is. So, um, so that's quite interesting. So, Larry, I want to uh, I want to dig into sort of you know, I mean, obviously one of the the big reasons that I I wanted to get you on the show is to talk about the current uh, tax uh, environment for for um, for the U.S. and I think a lot of people. Uh, A lot of people living abroad have in the last couple of years uh, been, whether they like it or not, have been... uh Quickly, um, you know, brought up to speed uh, about foreign uh, sort of tax reporting requirements, um, and that's due to stuff like FATCA and FinCEN and all these these buzzwords that uh, we hate hearing as as U.S. taxpayers because we it just makes us scared. So maybe you could just give us a brief overview uh, of how things have changed in sort of the last you know five to five plus years with the reporting requirements for U.S. Uh, taxpayers abroad. And, uh, and then we can maybe delve into a little bit about how things have changed since, um, since the beginning of last year when, uh, when President Trump took office.
1: Oh, this is going to be fun. For me. <laughs> uh, let's start back in 2010. Uh, Hire was the name of an act that was passed by Congress in March of 2010. It was a jobs act. Congress was functioning at two o'clock in the morning prior to adjournment, and Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa shoved into the bill a 77 page tax act known as a tax rule known as FATCA on behalf of the IRS. And not one of the 435 members of the House of Representatives, nor the 100 U.S Senators, actually read what they voted upon, and you got FATCA, which now, in essence, precludes Americans outside of America from being able to open up bank accounts. They, oh, they can find a bank that will open up an individual account, but just try to open up a business account owned by America Americans. You can't do that anymore, nor, for that matter, can you open up a brokerage account overseas U.S. brokerages, if you have a current account but a foreign address, will be glad to sell your stocks for you, but will no longer buy stocks for you anywhere. Any U.S. brokerage. So this was all because, uh, because of because of Chuck Grassley and Fatca, an agreement and double taxation avoidance agreements that the IRS hell bent on uh, signatures got from every place. Uh, among other things, the agreement that was signed in Hong Kong is far worse than i believe was signed any place else hong kong gave away everything and got absolutely zero in return
0: yeah so i'm just trying to to digest to dissect this a bit because basically if you could in in as as short and quickly as possible summarize what exactly is the requirements of fatca for that that deter uh, banks from from wanting to deal with any us customers
1: basically banks now have got to report on an annual basis who their US accounts are, account name, account number, uh, and in essence, failure to do so would subject the bank or the brokerage house to a 30% penalty of all income they're making any place. Now, if you've got an HSBC earning millions of dollars from investments in the United States, and they don't adhere to this, uh, they can basically find themselves with a 30% withholding and no chance of getting the money back because it's a penalty. Uh, HSBC, Citibank, the big banks overseas can handle it. What about the small banks? The easiest thing for them is to say, okay, no more Americans.
0: Right. I think it's incredible that that the U.S. had such was able to essentially bully all these uh, all these banks into to signing it and and how many different i mean is it basically all the country the major
1: countries around the world have signed this uh, they signed it and had agreed to adhere to US rules they had to because they didn't want to get into a financial fight with the US right. government but on the basis of reporting information the OECD came out with their own common reporting standards so now you've got Something that 19 of the 20 G20 members have adhered to, and they're following rules and procedures in user-friendly English, while Americans have to adhere to FATCA. And I defy anybody to sit down and read the rules and regulations of FATCA and tell me what the heck they mean.
0: (laughs) I'm certainly not going to do that.
1: that's why I'm hot. People hire me because I. Re- exactly. That's why that's why I have you. Um, you, give so- me th- you give me this material at three o'clock in the morning when I am wide awake because I'm an uh, unfortunately I am a, uh, I uh, I wake up in the middle of the night and I've got two or three hours where the I'm bright eyed and bushy tailed and what can I do? But I read tax stuff. Tax is a holistic sleeping pill. It'll eventually put you back to
0: sleep. This is very true. This is very true. You're not going to get liver cancer from uh, reading tax documents. Hopefully not. Um, so you know, I hear. So yeah, I mean, I, I think this is a big issue for, especially for sort of people in Hong Kong. You know, I mean, I've been in the Hong Kong in Hong Kong for for over a decade, and one of the biggest gripes, obviously, is uh, for startups that are trying to open companies here. Uh, you know, they don't have, uh, a lot of resources and they literally have find it very difficult to open bank accounts because, you know, I think that, like you said, most bank accounts, they just won't do it because they just don't want to deal with the headache. If you have anything, even in your, you know, anyone in your, in your company that is remotely linked to the U S they're just going to be like, you know what, I'd rather not, I'd rather not deal with the U S um, you know, find somewhere else. So this is actually a big problem. For the ecosystem here, and it is uh, is caused a lot of good companies to actually uh, move away or or start up in uh, other places that have more uh, friendly tax regime. So um, I think that this is an issue, uh, and I don't know if it's actually going to get any better. So maybe It's not going to get
1: better. It's only going <laughs> to get worse.
0: Yeah, exactly. So you know, every year I read your your tax letter that you send out to uh, to your clients, and uh, you know. I I have this this when when I see the email come into my email box, I have a a, a glimmer of hope that maybe maybe something good (laughs) has happened in the last 12 months. But usually it's always trending uh, and it's only gotten worse that direction. So um, on that note, uh, let's talk about the, the new administration and how things have changed under our dear President Trump.
1: Okay. well, first of all, We're heading towards the brand new Tax uh, Cut and Jobs Act of 2017. Uh, The formal name is something completely different. Uh, I don't call it the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. I think it goes much better when I'm talking to people about Trump tax. Right. And let's take a look, even before we look at Trump tax, how was the last major U.S. tax act Enacted. This was the tax 32 years ago, the Tax Reform Act of 1986. I was 44 years old at that time. I pr- I did not have a proverbial pot to piss in, and I took advantage of Trump of uh, the Tax Reform Act because there was such complete and utter chaos for three four years, and it and it in es- in essence. I financed three kids through university because of Reagan and the tax act, but that tax act actually got underway right after the 1984 congressional elections, when the stars for the Republicans were all, already in alignment. There was a Republican-controlled House, a Republican-controlled Senate, a Republican president, and they started work on a tax act and found that the equivalent way back when of the Tea Party Republicans wouldn't go along with that and it became a bipartisan effort so it became a permanent bill. When the act was passed around March 1986, the IRS had eight months to prepare for the new act and the IRS actually went ahead and hired 2,100 temporary employees to aid in the transition. transition. Now let's look at this year, the entire time frame for the act was 50 days from the day it was first introduced in the house to the day it was signed by Trump on December 22nd. But on the 2nd of December, when the Senate passed its version of the act prior to going to the conference committee, that act was 469 pages, 20 days later. The act that Trump signed was just under 1,100 pages. Those additional 600 pages primarily came from lobbyists. There are things in a very non-transparent act that we'll never discover that favors to people who can afford to pay for it. Is it wrong? No. Is it right? No. This is the way US government functions.
0: So in essence, a lot of people don't know, again, uh, what 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 that uh, tax cuts and jobs act is, but uh, as you call it, the Trump tax, uh, which people uh, are more familiar with. But in essence, what does it do? You know, because uh, people people think that it should help the economy and create jobs and this sort of thing. But what is it really? What is this really all about?
1: Okay, the, uh, it ami- initially starts out with a one and a half trillion dollar tax cut, without. Figuring out how to maintain the U.S. Treasury uh, when you've got a one and a half trillion dollar tax cut over the next 10 years without without uh, the adequate funds to do anything else. You're basically printing money. Will it bring in will it bring in jobs? I doubt it. But it will spur on the economy for a temporary period. Will it overheat the economy? I believe so. Uh, Will Rogers in 1932 coined the term trickle-down economics. Well, trickle-down economics has never worked, and I'm not saying that it won't work now, but I sincerely doubt that it will work. And it means, in essence, everything that's being done is with fiat money. It's printing money without any backing. It will ultimately, I feel, decrease the value of the dollar vis-a-vis other uh, economies in the world. Yeah, I think that that's
0: the uh, stance that um, a lot of the experts are taking, that the eventual effect uh, is is going to be that. So um, I guess only time will tell, uh, you know, he's certainly a radical leader that is uh, <laughs> that sort of uh, uh, flies, flies by the seat of his pants, so to speak, on especially on Twitter. But um I think it's uh it's it's all things that we have to consider, especially as US uh citizens living abroad. So um one other topic I wanted to quickly jump into is um, is the IRS itself. You know, another thing that I think we all kind of grew up uh, especially for people that have been living abroad, grew up uh, in fear of this entity known as the IRS. And oh, you, got, you know, you you gotta get your tax the taxes done on time. You don't want the IRS to be coming after you. Um, I know, you know, you've you've mentioned before. We've talked about how there's massive uh, budget. Uh, reductions over there in in, in the IRS. And and the IRS has also come under a certain bit of scrutiny uh, a few years ago. uh, And I think, I believe they were uh, accused of targeting certain types of uh, taxpayers for their audits of this sort of thing. What is going on over there? Uh, You know, is the IRS, uh, should we be as afraid of it as we are? Um, What's the future of that uh, entity?
1: I don't fear the IRS. The IRS in 2010, had an operating budget 20, uh, 21% higher than it does now. In 2010, there were 30% more compliance officers working within the IRS than there are now. What that means to me basically is that the IRS has had to become far more of a collection agency going after which wherever it felt it could make money. And the small American entrepreneur business person living outside the country is not what they're targeting because the IRS doesn't have the full capability of going after them. And yet, if you do something wrong, the chances are you're going to get an IRS letter. The first problem is trying to read the letter and figuring out what the hell they're talking about. (laughs) After that, it's trying to figure out how you can reach the IRS and get something accomplished because, frankly, the whole system has broken down.
0: I remember getting a tax letter actually a few years ago uh, after I had I'd, I'd moved away from North Carolina where I went to, to college. you know, <laughs> That was 17 years ago or whatever. And I remember getting a tax letter like 12 My years God, afterwards.
1: 17 years, 17 years ago, that's relatively new. <laughs> Hard to believe. I graduated university over 50 years ago. Good Lord, can I, be, can I be that old? Apparently I am. <laughs> but I just remember getting
0: that tax letter that said, oh, you haven't paid taxes in the state of North Carolina, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I remember thinking, I've, I haven't lived there for over a decade. Like, you know, I surely you must know by now or whatever, but uh, I guess they hadn't and it just got buried under paperwork.
1: So, Anybody listening to this, if you file U.S. taxes and you had an old address that's incorrect, file a change of address form 8822 with the irs because otherwise they'll send correspondence if they have correspondence to send to you to the wrong address you'll never find out about it and you're going to find that your accounts are levied because you never comp- uh, never replied there you go a nice little uh, tasty
0: morsel treat from uh, fr- a freebie from 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 larry um well i have i have one final uh topic of discussion that I want to talk to you about today. Uh, and it's it's a very uh, buzzy and relevant uh, one. And it's uh, cryptocurrencies and investments uh, within that space, because I know that a lot of us uh, are dabbling into that. Uh, and no one actually knows how to deal with the taxes or what the ramifications are. And uh, for a while, people just kind of thought it was the Wild Wild West and didn't even keep track of this sort of thing. Uh, from your standpoint, what is – how are cryptocurrency investments or transactions going to be taxed? And is it just going to be – I mean, from my standpoint, it's just going to be a nightmare uh, trying to keep track of all these trades and stuff like that uh, if people haven't done it already.
1: That's where you got the problem. The IRS this year said trades are – you have a pro, uh, you have coin, uh, coin uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum or any of the other ones. You sell it. It's not a trade. You sell it. Then you buy something else. They will not let you trade and make it tax-free. Each and every transaction has to be shown on its own. And this is where people are in trouble now because they assumed we can trade and it's all tax-free. The IRS says, no, it's a transaction by transaction basis. There are no tax-free trades. When did they say that? When did that come out? Uh, year. Late 2017, and they have come out with procedures for handling this. Those who are dabbling heavily in cryptocurrencies now have seen this, and uh, they're waking up to the fact that life isn't the way they thought it was going to be.
0: (laughs) But I'm curious to – I've dabbled a little bit. Luckily, I haven't dabbled heavily. But so is every single – I mean, is there going to be things like short-term and long-term capital gains on on – OK,
1: absolutely. It's treated like a stock, like a commodity. It's subject to orthodox capital gains and loss procedures. So, yeah, I mean, this is
0: really interesting because I think that, you know, there's a lot of these transactions that end up just dis- disappearing because let's say you sent it to the wrong address and uh, it's, a, it's a novice mistake. But uh, you just end up losing that. So I guess that you just write that off. I mean, it's it's really strange how this is all going to work.
1: Uh. What can I say? It is really strange. The IRS issued rules, regulations and procedures. But for every rule, regulation, procedure, I can find an instance where you fall out of that standard deviation. And what do you do then? My advice to people is sit down, document whatever you have. If you believe in something that, uh, that falls within the guidelines that the IRS has given you, then take the liberal approach to it. Because at worst comes to worst, all that can happen is you're going to be challenged. Right. I think that uh, all
0: these exchanges now, uh, you should be able to download your trade history. So I guess that's the first step.
1: Well, what what, what happens before you had all these exchanges? Or what happens if you're dealing with an exchange that's not part of the U.S. tax system? How do you report it then? There are so many... There's so many inconsistencies that have to be covered. And my best advice is, if you have any documentation, list it. The more heavily you document something, the less likely the IRS is going to try to read it. Yeah. So
0: that's the other thing, because the most of the world's uh, cryptocurrency trading volume is not in the U.S. It's actually in Asia. You know, Korea, Japan, China are the heaviest traders of it. And a lot of those exchanges are uh, are not onshore. And so I can see that, you know, maybe the IRS will start uh, requiring the U.S. exchanges like the big U.S. ones like Coinbase and that sort of thing to uh, basically report their. The, and, and I think they already have. They're, they're they required. already
1: are, have and are doing it.
0: Yeah, but how are they going to deal with U.S. citizens trading on foreign exchanges? Um, because there's also, you know, I mean, th- this whole cryptocurrency thing started with Bitcoin, which is uh, very anti-institution, and and they, so to to have those guys actually to to require them to report, like a, let's say a FATCA type thing for for cr- cryptocurrencies, it's going to be that's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out, and if people will actually comply, exchanges will actually comply to that
1: uh it remains to be seen what will happen uh i honestly don't know i learned a long time ago that when it comes to investments i've discovered the law of reverse alchemy if i buy it and it's gold i die you don't want to know what it turns to so fast it isn't funny <laughs> but with the exception of long-term real estate i have been an ad uh unfortunately i'd I'd adhered to reverse alchemy and virtually everything I did. Long-term real estate is an exception. I've done well in that. Thank God for that.
0: (laughs) Well, there you have it. Uh, Larry, it's been uh, such a pleasure having you on. Thanks for coming on and sharing your insights. I know that, uh, you know, before we we part, uh, I just wanted to ask, uh, you know, you've obviously written a number of books on tax. You can kind of just Google uh, Larry Lipshire tax. And uh, on Amazon, you have a how many books have you written now?
1: I've written seven books. They have been critically acclaimed, but they are absolute worst sellers in the world, nobody in their right mind voluntarily wants to buy a tax book.
0: Well, I was going to say, you know, you talked about Guinness record, world records. You, you might uh, be you might be challenging the uh, Guinness record of number of tax books written by a single individual. Uh, no,
1: I'm sure there's somebody who came out with more. And I'll tell you, I stop at seven. No more.
0: All right. Stop at seven. Uh, anyone who's written a book knows how difficult it actually is. Uh, the one thing that I do appreciate about your books is is they all have uh, very colorful uh, covers, uh, sort of cartoons and this sort of thing. So,
1: if you put an orthodox cover on a textbook, nobody will buy it.
0: Yeah, yes, that's very true. Uh, at least you're increasing your, your odds. Is there any exciting projects that you are working on uh, this year uh, other than, uh, you know, enjoying your life and traveling, uh, being a digital nomad?
1: Uh, no, I'm having a ball doing what I'm doing. I never thought. A, that I'd get to be my age. B, that I'd be as active that I am, as I am. C, living in Asia, which is where I want to be. Well, I think that you've
0: deserved uh, the, the life that you've created for yourself. Um, the, the last question I have for you, and I'm not sure if you're actually taking on more customers at the moment.
1: Uh, yes, I am. Okay. My wife, Catherine, is an enrolled agent. She's been working with me for the past five, six years just on taxes. And we're at the point where we actually are going to take advantage of Trump tax and taking on more cases.
0: Excellent. So what's the best place that people can uh, find you or connect with you if they say they're a U.S. citizen living abroad and they want they want uh, some tax advice?
1: PRC taxman at yahoo.com.
0: There we go. PRCTaxman at yahoo.com. I'll have that all linked up for people, the audience in the show notes. Uh, Larry, thanks again. It's been such a pleasure. And uh, <laughs> I am looking forward to uh, actually for the audience uh, that are, is based in Hong Kong or come through here. I know that uh, Larry, you give a couple talks every once in a while at the FCC. Um, and uh, those are pretty good. Do you have one, uh, another one scheduled up anytime soon?
1: Okay. First of all, the FCC one I did on March fourteenth. If you just go to YouTube and type in my name, Larry Lipshire, you'll get that immediately. It was a in total, it was a thirty-seven minute show with questions and answers, and uh, it was a good. It was a good video. I'm doing another performance so to speak in shanghai on april 17th tax filing day
0: ah great so anyone up there uh should, dinner should...
1: starts at 6 30 all the booze you can drink i want a raucous crowd because if they heckle me i heckle back and it's a <laughs> hell of a lot more fun that way
0: excellent thanks again larry we really appreciate your time and uh and take care
1: we'll, we'll speak to you soon And marvelous. We actually made it through before your kids woke up. Absolutely. We did it. (laughs) Have a great day, Jay. And I'll speak. I know I'll be speaking to you soon. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye now.
0: I hope you enjoyed today's episode. All the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. Come back often and make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. Don't forget to join us next week for another exciting episode of The Jay Kim Show. I'd love to hear your comments. You can find me on Twitter at Kimmer, J-A-Y-K-I-M-M-E-R. See you guys next week.